0: Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole Nisbomer-Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D
1: exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. So I am super excited today to be sitting here in actually what this morning was snowy Seattle with Ben Jones. Ben is founder of Data Literacy. He recently had his second book published, Avoiding Data Pitfalls. We're going to talk about all of that and much more today. Ben, welcome.
0: Thanks, Cole. Great to be here. Welcome back home.
1: Oh, thank you. (laughs) Uh, You know, I was trying to think back to some of our early conversations, and I think I think you're one of those people who I knew for a long time through like email and social media and that sort of stuff before we like for many years before we actually yeah. met in person.
0: Yeah, I seem to remember that being the case. And then, what was it? Maybe was it a Tapestry where we know, met?
1: I think we met finally at Tapestry because I think that was part of the outreach and why oh, we. Because I remember right. conversation after conversation where it was like several years in a row that we'd yeah. reached out and said, "Come to Tapestry." Yeah, yeah. And my response every time was, "I'm
0: pregnant. I'm pregnant. <laughs> <laughs>
1: or I just had a baby."
0: That's right. And, and then I was like, one of these days, yeah, we had this data storytelling conference, and I was like, "We got to get Cole to come speak." And you're right; it was maybe three years in a row where you had there like a family like reason you couldn't make it. And finally, we got to, to come to, the, I think it was the St. Augustine one, yeah, right? Yeah, that sounds yeah. right. I think Florida. it was
1: 2017, maybe?
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. That was a great one.
1: Well, and that, that's one of the things that I think strikes me about you and your work is this inclusive desire, right? You want everyone to be able to take part. You also actually, another anecdote sort of related to this, you introduced me to RJ Andrews. Mm-hmm. So I remember one oh, time yeah, you RJ, reaching out and yeah. saying, hey, I th- I know him, I know you, I think you guys might actually like live down the street from each other. <laughs> and it turned out that was the case. We were almost neighbors. Um,
0: yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember making that connection. RJ is such a talented guy. And you all live right next to each other. And you all are right there too with Catherine. So Catherine Madden there. And uh, yeah, what a, great, what a great little data hub that was there for a while until you all decided to get out of the Bay Area Go and the craziness? Ways. There. Yeah, yeah, Catherine
1: and I just missed each other because oh, she was just coming right? into San Francisco. as I Ah, was
0: okay, got it. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I love this. So the you, know, you connect people mm-hmm. are inclusive, and I have to think it's some of those things that you know I've observed in these cases that have gotten you to where you are, and maybe even been the impetus for some of the stuff that you're doing with data literacy.
0: Yeah, I'm a middle child, so I guess uh, bringing people together is what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> but um, yeah, I really like all the different communities that are out there, and, and it is a goal I have to try to bridge across some of the different subgroups in order to build um, you know, a more connected, uh, broader data community at the level of ideas and concepts, I think there's a really strong tool-based sub-communities right now, which is great, and it'll always be the case. I don't think there's a problem with that. I just think it's also great to start to connect across them because a lot of the times we're looking at the same challenges and and trying to solve some of the same problems, maybe just using a slightly different approach, but there's a lot that can be learned there, which is what I loved about that little tapestry conference we ran for all those years with Robert Kosara. And uh, that's what we were trying to do, was bring together not just tool-based groups, but also practitioners and academics, and designers and journalists, anyone who's interested in this topic of storytelling with data, that if we got them all in one room, you know, when we say all, it was that nice small number where everybody feels like they get to bump yeah, just were what, just about like maybe 100-ish people? Yeah, like 100, 120 maybe is what we targeted. And so everybody really got to know each other a little better, and, and we learned from each other. So, So that was a fun event that really... I think got me addicted to getting people connected in a way. So I've
1: written down communities and Mm -hmm. bringing communities together because I I definitely want to come back to that. Uh, I have some questions for you. The team has some questions for you. We put this out to the Storytelling with Data community and Mm -hmm. have folks who've raised questions. Congrats on that, by the
0: way. Nice new community. I love that page. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah. we're having fun with it.
1: (laughs) But I think before we do any of that, for those listening who may not know Ben Jones, can you talk to us about the journey you've taken? Um, how, How did you come to do what you're doing today?
0: Sure, sure yeah, so it goes back to, I guess, uh, you know, engineering school and then going into kind of Six Sigma movement in a medical device company where I was training people on how to use data and statistics and charts and graphs to improve the processes. And that really got me hooked on data. And so then uh, I remember I made a phone call one time, just out of the blue, to this person named Alex Curran who had won a dashboard contest. And I asked him, I said, "Could you give me 30 minutes of your time? I'd just like to know how you do what you do.
1: How did you How did you come to know
0: the- I just saw, you know, I was following, this is back in maybe 2009, 2010, and I was kind of lurking. You're working
1: as an engineer at this point? Yeah,
0: as a trainer, as a data trainer okay. uh, with the, at, at a company called Medtronic in the LA area. But I was reading Flowing Data yeah. by Nathan Yao, I was reading Visualizing Data by Andy Kirk, just sort of soaking it in and really blown away by all the amazing dialogue that was starting up around data. And so Alex was a person too that I noticed he'd won this dashboard building contest and I was really impressed with something he made online because I could interact with it Mm -hmm. and I was really blown away. I didn't know how to do that. I was using Excel and Minitab, things at that time that I did not know how to make interactive. Excel is pretty amazing, which you can do nowadays on the interactive side of things. But I just wanted to learn, so I, I said, could you give me 30 minutes of your time? He said yes. He was telling me all about ProtoViz, which is a precursor to D3. Okay. And so I was just resigned to the fact that I was going to need to learn to code. So long story short, at the very end of the call, and this was back in 2011, he says, oh, you might want to check out something called Tableau Public. It's free to download. And uh, you know, it just released it, and, and I'd never heard of Tableau or Tableau Public or anything. And so I said, okay, I'll try it out. So I downloaded it. And it was really surprised at how easy it was to get interactive data online with that platform. And so started to put things out there on my site and that I just launched Data Remixed. And then that's when I kind of got roped into this early days of the Tableau community and then had a chance to move up here with my family to Seattle to lead the Tableau public platform.
1: Yeah, What did you, so tell us yeah. about that jump, right? Uh, you uh, go uh, from being introduced to Tableau public, you like it, it provides some interactivity, to right. now you're working at Tableau.
0: Yeah, it was so neat. I couldn't believe that a year and a half after starting a blog, I was replacing my career, right, with this new data, which is what I wanted. I wanted to be in the data world.
1: And, and- do, is the blog, do you think, what Yeah, it's the only reason
0: why. I think it's the only reason why. At the time, I was getting um, interviews with Facebook as well as ESPN. Both of those at that time for me were dream opportunities. Sure. One was in San Francisco, one was in Connecticut. And I just thought to myself, well, I don't want to make this decision about what's next in my career without talking to Tableau. So I had won that Iron Viz contest, and I was going back and forth with people at the company, people like Ross Perez, who's now at Snowflake, people like Ellie Fields, who's still at Tableau, and just started to realize they were really cool. you know. And I was like, wow, the people there seem great. Their product seems great. And then in the lead up to this little contest I was in in San Diego, I just said, well, hey, you know, would you ever be interested in having someone like me run Tableau Public? And they said, well, let's talk about that. And so um, a few months after losing the Iron Viz contest to a fabulously talented designer named Anya Ahern, a good friend of mine, um, I got the job at Tableau. And so uh, that was wild for me, you know, it was so yeah. exciting. I got a chance to really step into this. Uh, a product I was already promoting I didn't need to get paid. I was already doing that. So it sounded like a great thing and a natural thing for me to spend my time doing. And then it just really took off. It was so, such an amazing how growth So I'm curious. How many, so you know, yeah.
1: back, that would have been like, what, 2012 Yeah, 2013. So,
0: 2013. so January 2013 is when I moved to Seattle. So okay. what's that like? seven years ago. Yeah. yeah. How many
1: people was Tableau at that point? Do you
0: remember? Oh, he was right around 600, five, 600. Okay. And it was pretty much the lead up to going public. It was five months from that point in time that they went public. And so we already kind of knew that was what was happening. Um, and then the company just started growing and growing. It's over 4,000, I think, people now. And so um, it went from, you know, a company of still sort of had a startup feel when I was there, when I first joined, yeah. but rapidly grew to what felt like, you know, more of like a mid-sized company feel, uh, but still retained a lot of what was really special about the company. So that was was a nice thing that the growth, I didn't feel like those days, the growth didn't cause it to lose, you know, what it was all about, right? But yeah, that was a fun few years for me there, being a part of this platform that was just growing so fast. Yeah,
1: and you wrote a book about this as well. Yeah,
0: so then um, January 2013, I joined a company and started writing the book, Communicating Data with Tableau, right around that same time, maybe a couple months later. And uh, published that in 2014 and um, that helped kind of really start to the beginning what's planted the seeds of the next phase of my career because with that book I I got the chance to teach a class at University of Washington and that was um, all about data visualization theory and so I started to really kind of learn that art of teaching and training taking what I'd done in the Six Sigma world, applying it to data visualization and analytics, and started to realize how much I love it. I mean, so many people were just just getting so excited about finally getting amazing results out of data for the first time for many of them, you know. Yeah.
1: And when you were teaching, so, were you teaching students Tableau or?
0: Yeah, it was uh, teaching them data visualization theory, and then like, you know, we would teach them a variety of tools, but I think maybe 80% of the tool focus was Tableau. Sure. Then another 20% was trying to, you know, um, Drip in some other tools so that they got a little of a blend, but uh, but yeah, we tried a few different formulas there and felt that ultimately having like one primary tool focus along with a few other secondary tools seemed like it was the best mix. When we tried to mix it completely, it just people felt like they didn't really learn much of anything. Yeah. So um, we did settle on on Tableau Public because it was a free tool they could use in the class. So so yeah, that and then we, and then we eventually used the academic programs offering with Tableau to be able to. Just give them licenses. So anyway, that was that was pretty neat for them too. But I just got hooked on that kind of that giving help, be, being part of someone's light bulb moment. Started to become such a really neat thing, and I realized that was really what I wanted to spend a lot of my time doing. You know, rather than climbing a, a very awesome corporate ladder, but it's still one that I felt like wasn't really giving me the chance to be to do the best things that I love to do. So, and yeah.
1: you were at Tableau for a while, right?
0: Yeah, yep. just about six years there, and. Um, Yeah, some good years there. Really, really fun time. Great people and and, uh, learned a lot. And ultimately, you know, like you said, this ability to connect and uh, be part of um, a platform as well as tapestry and other things, the conferences that got me connected to so many amazing, talented people. You know, I realized that that was a great asset that Tableau had helped me build for myself and so um,
1: absolutely well, yeah. it seems like it, it helped to reinforce something you'd already started to do right yeah. you find the tool you start writing about it then you get the job then you just this yeah. self uh, propelling sort
0: of yeah uh, yeah it was like that it felt like that too yeah
1: and uh, <laughs> it's coincidental that you say light bulb moment right and mm-hmm. enjoying seeing these light bulb moments because actually one of the questions from the community from David yeah. Johnston was did you have a particular light bulb moment that uh, set right, you on the right. path of yeah. championing data literacy, you know, or was it more a case of slowly evolving, recurring thoughts yeah. that brought you to this point?
0: Yeah, so there's a few well, And how did you decide moments. to leave
1: Tableau, right? I'm interested yeah. in that too, that transition yeah, of, yeah. okay, I'm done, you said you know, climbing mm-hmm. the corporate ladder, now I'm gonna do this thing on my own. Yeah. How did you get to that point?
0: I started to get people to ask me varieties of a very similar question. They would say, I think it's great that you show us how to make, I don't know, let's say a histogram. And that's awesome, and we really love your videos, and we really love all that you do to help us get better at that. But then they said, Ben, did you know that really, unfortunately, really, there's nobody here at our company that knows what that means. They don't know what that means. Oh, interesting. And so so
1: do you the have... people creating the graphs were bought yes. in, but encountering uh, a lack of understanding for from their audience.
0: Yeah, and executives of those companies too saying, hey, do you have anything to teach a general understanding of these sort of chart types, but also, important aspects of data like context and variation so we don't really I mean the tool stuff you've given us is so amazing thank you and it really it got so good I mean the on-demand videos the training outfit at Tableau just grew over the time I was there and they're really really good but they started asking for so many people started asking for something a little bit different and it was really the best thing I could describe is they were just asking for data literacy training yeah they just wanted to know Do they have a program that could help people with the basics, you know? And going from maybe even being data phobic to being someone more comfortable and confident. And And when you
1: say data literacy, can you tell me about what you mean? Because I feel like sometimes people use that term and mean very different
0: things. Yeah, totally. I know, I know. And and so with every term, you know, there's some good things and bad things about it. So data literacy, what does that mean to me? That's the ability to read, understand, create and communicate data as information. So I feel like there's really two aspects to that. There's the communication side where you're creating charts and graphs for people, presentations for people. And then there's the audience, there's the consumers, the people that need to take that in and make decisions, do something with it. Both need to be speaking the same language in order for that connection to happen. And so that's what I understand data literacy to be. And I think there's opportunities on both sides of that coin to teach people to be better, more highly data literate. And so um, I wrote a little ebook when I started the business where I broke it down into 17 key traits. And you provide
1: and, that for download, right? Yeah, you
0: can get that on the, on the page and download that. Um, yeah, we'll
1: make sure we link to that.
0: Yeah, sure, yeah. So it's just on dataliteracy.com, my site. You can go down to the bottom and see a little link there. And really, um, I break that up into knowledge, skills, but also attitudes and behaviors. How do people think and feel about data? What are the ways they act day in and day out when they come into the office? Those are just as important as the facts and you know, pieces of information that they know, concepts that they grasp, as well as all the amazing tools they know how to use. Um, just as important to that as well, what do you think data is, is for? You know, what are some aspects of your, your role that allow you to leverage all of that? And so to me, that's what data literacy is all about. And like I said, I felt that there was a gap there. There's this massive education gap out there We've had so much, maybe like, 20. let's see, 2000 to to 2010, we started amassing databases Mm -hmm. at an incredible scale, and that's continued. I feel like right around 2010, when I started getting involved with the community up until now, there was this massive evolution of tools, just amazing things, new tools. And so now I feel like the biggest opportunity is, on the skill side, on the knowledge side, is people's abilities to leverage all of that in a team environment, mm-hmm. you know? So that's, uh, that's what caused me to want to lead Tableau, It's yeah. feeling like there was an opportunity there for me to address that in a way that also connected with something I love to do, you know, cause I was getting so excited about that light bulb moment for people at the University of Washington, figuring this is a perfect mix of what I love to do, what's needed. And ultimately I'd done a little MBA program just prior to launching my blog and I knew I wanted to do entrepreneurial. A little
1: MBA program? Yeah, it was,
0: no, it was was a little, it was little, it was little, it it really was. It was at California Lutheran University. It was a little hometown college in Thousand Oaks where I grew up, and I had little babies at the time, you know, in diapers, and so one class a night is the best I could work in, a little program. I wanted to do the big UCLA program, but I did the nice, and I really learned a lot, and it was all about entrepreneurship, and I realized that I will never know how to be an entrepreneur based on classes and books, right? I had to get in there and roll it up and try it. And I knew I needed to do that. And I felt like if I got to 80 or 85 and I looked back and said I never tried it, I would really be mad at myself for this moment in time if I didn't do this business right now. And I feel was
1: like there it, a single yeah. moment, right? You brought up earlier this idea of, you know, I go in and I have this thought oh, yeah, during yeah. my <laughs> day at Tableau. Like, is yeah. that the point?
0: That was I mean? a, That was a moment. There was a couple other moments, you know, where you start to realize that, is something more effective that you could be spending your time doing, you know? But I think even
1: recognizing that still yeah. taking the jump of the, the sure thing. Right. Right. And going oh, off and doing something on your own. Yeah. How did you,
0: that was excruciating. Uh, that was so difficult. I, I think a favorite author of mine who I think his behavior is not that great is this guy named Nicholas Nassim Taleb. And he's a genius. He wrote a book called, uh, Fooled by Randomness, The Black Swan, Anti-Fragile. Great, great, great books. Don't follow him on Twitter because he, he's not nice to people, but that's another story. But yeah, he talks about a, um, a regular paycheck being, you know, the most addictive substance more than heroin, right? And it is true. It's so hard to step away from that, you know, this regular cadence yeah. that you know is going to be something you can use to just fund your life, your lifestyle or whatever it is, Um so to do that, to break away from that, I really had to have a few pieces of, of the puzzle in place for me. One was my ex-wife, Sarah, she was really helpful and offered to take healthcare for our, my kids. So I have teenage boys, I couldn't go a day without that. Yep. And so she, she did that and you know, I was really thankful for that. Uh, My wife, Becky, um, also just put me on her insurance. And so some of those enabling pieces, healthcare insurance is such a big part of it. It's crazy that those things are so connected, your livelihood and your career and your ability to get care at the doctor's office. It's weird and I don't like it, but I had to solve those pieces of the puzzle before I could walk away, before I feel comfortable that it was a... like a responsible thing I was doing. But then also just the emotional side of it, I really started to read some Hindu texts like the Bhagavad Gita, as well as just the Upanishads and some other texts that really help you kind of let go of so much need for the outcome or the result to be a certain Mm. thing and just let it be what it is, you know, and just put yourself into what you do. You know, full effort is full reward. Don't be so hung up on what does or doesn't happen. Also, the Tao Te Ching, this notion that, you know, well, what's better, failure or success? They each have their own positive and negative impacts on your life that are really hard to predict. And yeah. so, you know, just helping me get to the place in my own mind where I was okay trying something no matter where it went, you know. Oh, that, and learning that was, from
1: the process, right? No yeah, matter what it is.
0: Just going for it and having fun with it, doing the best I can do, letting the chips fall where they may. I can't control the outcome of this business. I can't, you know have perfect influence on all those other market factors and what does or doesn't land well. I can just do my best, you know. And and
1: you control the energy that you put into it, right? When you found something that you're passionate about, which it sounds like you have done. So how long have you been doing this? You you went out of your Yeah, so a
0: little over a year now. So December 2018 is when I left. And then, um, so it's been a a bit more than a year. And the first two quarters, quarter one, quarter two, that's white-knuckle time, you know, because yeah. the sales cycles take a while.
1: Well, and can, and so, you, can you talk to us a bit yeah. about what, what does data literacy do, what sort oh, of yeah. services do for that?
0: Yeah, so my little company here, uh, really what we do is we offer training and education services to mostly companies, but also government agencies to help them learn the language of data. There's a few levels to that. I okay. thought when I first launched that the starting point level, was going to be helping people work with raw data, mm-hmm. and actually, you mentioned R.J. Andrews. He's on my board of advisors, and he told me a few months before I launched. He said, "Ben, you really should just do something even more basic than that, like a class that just teaches people how to read and interpret data visualizations." Yeah. And I kind of felt like, well, I mean, th- you know, that sounds a little basic. Don't so people already know at the, that?
1: The audience of yes,
0: datas. right. Yep. So you're a person that comes in, you see dashboards. They're in your own financial software, websites you log into, they're right there in your company meetings, you're feeling like you don't have what it takes to understand them, and let's help people accomplish that. Mm-hmm. And so I've been surprised that that, that has been, that. so now that's what I call level one. So level one is just really about reading and interpreting charts and graphs. Level two is where you roll up the sleeves and say, I need to be able to make my own. I need to be able to, you know, not just trust what someone else is showing me, I need to also be able to check that and analyze it myself, and that's more, what has typically been an analyst role, but nowadays is so much more than it's Everybody, yeah, pretty much, I and mean, everybody touches data. So many people now that don't have analyst in their title are working with raw data, that that's also a really uh, popular program. And now what's blown me away is that there's a level zero demand, which I did not even expect. And is oh, really- Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's really people saying, I just wanna know what data is and how it applies to me. Hmm. I did not see that coming. You know, I've had so many people reach out to me say, Well, your charts and graphs, class level one, that sounds great. But Ben, we have something we need before that, which is just there's so many people in our organization that really don't know what data is supposed to be used for, you know, and how it applies to them. Are there
1: certain types of organizations where you're seeing this more than others? I'm particularly interested about the the level zero, right? Because I wouldn't have thought that either.
0: Are there certain types? So I've had a nonprofit ask me. I've had a Fortune 500 company ask me. I've had a government agency ask me. So I then no, right? Everywhere. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't yeah. I, and I'd also it's small numbers for me, right? So yeah. it's very small ends. So I don't know if I have seen enough to be able to answer the question what's different about groups that are asking for that. But I've just noticed that it's been a pretty wide and varied cross section that is asking for it. And
1: when you're yeah. working with groups, are you, you're going there, you're spending time with them in person, or what does that look yeah, like?
0: Yeah, mostly. Mostly I'm traveling to them and you know, spending time with them in their conference rooms. Also doing some virtual trainings with some uh, some teams that are maybe remote or dispersed. And so I like using Zoom to you know, connect with people with video conferencing, that works great. And um, is this
1: typically an ongoing relationship? Yeah, it'll
0: be, it... I mean, so I'm just year one, so a lot yeah. of what I did in year one was pilot programs with people. Hey, let's take 20 or 30 people, walk them through some of your programs, see how that goes. So now I'm going through the phase of kind of going back and talking with those companies that ran pilots to see what they want to do next. Yeah. And so that gets to a question of scale, right? So how do I get this content to a 1,000 or 5,000 people? And that's usually a very different kind of product, which is going to be, I think, what a lot of my year two is all around experimenting and learning how to get great at delivering on-demand kinds of materials Mm -hmm. for people, that it's also still a good experience for them. Because I don't think that's as easy as it sounds. I think, you know, how do you make that experience great. It's easier when you're there and you're in the room and you know you can get the vibe going and you know you can respond to them. Yeah, you can see the
1: looks on people's faces and react to that, right?
0: Right. How do you do that if you're staring into a camera delivering files to people? I think it's a very different challenge, but one, I don't think I can accomplish the goal of my organization without figuring out how to do that well. Without scaling. Yeah. Yeah. Figuring out how to get that kind of content in front of the eyes of order of magnitude, higher number of people is something I'm going to, at least try it out and see how it goes.
1: All right, so year one is around testing things, piloting things, putting yep. stuff out there. Really just, just
0: developing the programs too. Yeah. Like what are these programs? How do they work? Yeah. I had all these ideas when I launched it and, and very much then you start to talk to people and realize that it isn't really what you expected, you know. Yeah.
1: And yeah, modifying course, uh, adjusting as needed sometimes, right? Totally. Talk to me about how does, so you you had uh, your second book came out late last year, Avoiding Data Pitfalls. How does that fit into all of this? And I want to talk about the book itself too.
0: Right. So no, good question. I mean, for me, you know, teaching people kind of like with grammar, right? So, you know, a lot of it is learning the rules and learning what works and sometimes they're rules of thumb, which I'm a big believer in data, but also is also teaching people what not to do, and that's what avoiding data pitfalls is mostly about, which is, you know, think of like grammar, if I say, take the sentence, let's eat, Grandpa, and then I take the comma out of there, the meaning of that <laughs> sentence changes <laughs> dramatically a <laughs> in a really kind of disturbing way, so my apologies to the listeners, but data is the same way, you can take one little detail and you get that detail wrong, now all of a sudden the understanding people get is actually like, dead wrong, you know. And so uh, Avoiding Data Pitfalls, the book, was about my journey of making lots of mistakes with data, seeing students make some of those same mistakes, realizing it would be helpful to write about that. I think there's a class there, you know, I need to to develop that. And certainly my publisher and editor would like me to do that. I think that keeps the book going and, and gives it life beyond just that launch moment. So that'll be uh, down the road here, but uh, yeah, I think of it as just focusing on a handful of things to avoid, you know, things not to do, common uh, errors, and so. Um,
1: and you started writing a while still at Tableau, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a whole crazy story too. There, I mean, it took me five years to write the book. When and you talk a
1: little bit about this in the yeah, book itself.
0: Yeah, and and uh, really kind of like you know, life take twists and turns that sometimes can get you away from. Your best of intentions to complete projects, so that's certainly what happened to me. But, but came back to finally finishing it. And um, actually, you you factored in because I know you you are the one who introduced me to uh, my editor over there at, at Wiley. And always in the back of my mind, I felt like I didn't want to let you down. So
1: Aww. I knew I needed
0: to come back to finishing see, accountability that accountability is so, good when yeah, you set goals. I, <laughs> I, was like, oh, I, I can't see her at the next tapestry and tell her I've <laughs> only written one more chapter. So so yeah, I finally got around to finishing it. And I also have to give a lot of credit to my wife, Becky, for helping me create a climate in my life where there was more positive uh, kind of energy going forward that allowed me to push the, goal, the ball across the goal line there. Um, so yeah, but it was I like writing. It's just that crazy feeling where you know where you've got a final to write in college and you're always going out with your friends, but you're feeling like, Oh, I need to be working on this final paper.
1: Yeah. It hangs over you.
0: And that's writing a book, but it happens for a whole year or two or yeah. three, right? <laughs> From in my right? case, <laughs> half a decade of always feeling anytime I'm doing something fun, yeah. oh I should be doing this. So that's that's a um, emotional roller coaster ride in and of itself. It is. Yeah.
1: And so I have read data avoiding data pitfalls. Yeah, uh, I really enjoyed it I actually I wasn't oh, cool. sure what I was getting myself into when I opened it and <laughs> okay. I honestly I was a little intimidated by the uh, Table of Contents because oh, the okay. first data pitfall. Yeah, can you say it out loud for us?
0: Oh Epistemic errors. Is yes. That what it is?
1: Epist- <laughs> yeah, I didn't yeah. even know how to say that. Oh,
0: one. yeah epistemology. Uh, yeah Yeah, yeah, so
1: talk to us about what that is and then one <laughs> yeah. of the things I love by the way is and I and this was I I shouldn't have been surprised by this because I know you, and uh-huh. I know you're writing from you know from your blog and from other places. Yeah. But one of the things that I really appreciated and enjoyed about the book is the conversational style, right? Mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. you bring so many of your own anecdotes and examples into yep. it. The examples are very accessible and varied throughout, and mm-hmm. there's this very much uh, like. Your niceness comes mm-hmm. through if that mm-hmm, makes mm-hmm. sense. of there you know, there's no condemning people for making mistakes. It's like yeah. we've all done this, and hey, I've done this, yeah. and here I can laugh at myself about this now, but here mm-hmm. here's the the pitfall I fell into and how you can look out for it and how you can avoid it. and the right. tone of everything was really uh, nice.
0: Yeah, you know, I think. Well, I'm Canadian. My teenage son I tells me I have that. to be I have to be nice because I'm Canadian. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I just got my U.S. citizenship a couple months ago, which was finally. I've been, yeah, I've been here since I was eight. But um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, so, there's that. But also, I feel like the cult, the climate right now is so caustic. I mean, everybody is so harsh, and everybody loves pointing at the person that screws up and the whole cancel culture, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think on the one hand, we're dealing with very real issues, and that's good. On the other hand, um, it seems like the piling on and the playground bully component, there's just too much of it, you know? And so I don't think we're gonna get very In far- social
1: media or where are you yes, seeing it. Yes, cu-
0: in, in culture, in, gen- in our society in general. Okay. I don't see it too much in the data communities. I feel like we've done a pretty good job steering clear of the no, worst of that. No, but there is some of yeah. the
1: dogmatic, right? Always do this, yeah. never do that, which, as you talk about in the book, is sort of the fundamentally wrong language. Well, yeah. I now put that in the terms that <laughs> we yeah. shouldn't be, but right? That there, there are gray areas, or there's always a good use case for something.
0: I feel like that. I, I really feel like our, our generation now has been the one to bring that about. Because I remember back in 2010, 2011, when I first started blogging, it was that, um, you know, there are rules. If you don't follow them, you get pointed out and laughed at, et cetera. And I remember my first visualization I ever published to the web has a photograph of a, of a hero of mine, Wayne Gretzky, right behind the data. And, and I remember and thinking- You it reposted a,
1: this recently, right? Yeah, I, I did. This. It was my yeah. very
0: first Tableau public visualization I ever put out there. I still think it's my best. I had to buy the image from Getty uh, to put it out there, but and eventually got around to doing that. But I remember thinking at the time, "Oh my gosh, you know, there's all these data viz purists are going to hate on me mm. for this chart junk. It's a scatter plot and it's got a hockey player picture behind it, and everybody's going to say all that ink is not necessary, et cetera, et cetera. But it just felt perfect to me. You know, yeah. the way the hockey stick is going through the data and making a cloud." And then the outlier up there in the top, right by the hockey player's face. And so, anyway, long story short, I just kind of bit the bullet and put it out there, expecting the worst. Even in the blog post where I write about it, I'm saying the data gods are gonna hate on me, et cetera. <laughs> and so I feel like we've moved away from that to some degree. Where well, and more... I think
1: there's growing recognition that there are multiple reasons that yep. you might choose to visualize right. data. And efficiency or knowledge yep. transfer isn't the only reason.
0: Right. So there's an openness to the gray area, yep. which also means, you know, we do sometimes get it wrong multiple often now, but there's more experimentation, and I think that that's okay. It's interesting to see what direction it'll go in next, but yeah, um, but I feel like a part of that was being willing to allow uh, each one of us to try things, to get things wrong, to live and learn, yeah. to have a conversation around what works well, what doesn't work as well, as opposed to having it be this black and white world where you either got it 100% right or you got it 100% wrong, you know. Um, and data's just not like that either. There's so many nuances, subtleties about what might be true, but what might not quite be what you think it is. Yep. And that's the epistemic error chapter, chapter one right there, was all about our tendency, I think partly anyway, to assume that if it's data, it's right. Yes, and uh, really and people kind of- have a
1: really strong desire to want to do this. I think yeah. both the people analyzing the data, but then also the audiences, right, of taking data as truth.
0: Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why do we really fall back on that?
1: I, I think that we have this idea that numbers are hard fact.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but you do a really good job of pointing out and walking us through so many examples where they might be when you frame it correctly, yeah. right? When you f- use the right wording around mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. But we make so many generalizations off of these things that are no. No longer fact yeah uh right? right examples of bikes across the fremont bridge oh yeah or uh yeah even when it comes to the same person rating things at different points in time uh-huh, right uh-huh. bananas right yeah. comes to <laughs> that was
0: like, a fun little i played a joke I, I feel bad about that one i played a joke on my social media following by having them do this little survey where i, showed
1: I love them, it showed them bananas
0: yeah and have them rate them and then tricking them by putting the picture in there twice but yeah that's just to kind of realize that yeah, we don't, we don't always get it right, it's, it's not always perfect. Also, with the bikes example, that crazy spike might not be a lot of bikes, it might be a bad sensor, um, and that's not usually the first thing we think about. For yeah. some reason, it's sometimes not something we think about at all. And so then- Is that, it
1: because we're so quickly after the answer, do you think? I
0: think we're, this species of ours, we're just so addicted to the feeling of being right. Hmm. You know? And so data gives us that shortcut to feeling like we know. Mm-hmm. And that's really uh, tempting to want to be there. And uh, it's harder to be in this middle area where maybe we know, but maybe we don't know, and there's tension there.
1: Or here's where we yeah. know, and here's right. the, the, you use uh, one phrase at, at a point that I think you borrowed from someone else, but exploring the contours of the data, yes, right? Yes, yes,
0: that's from Michael Mixon. Yeah, he said it, I'll never forget it. I mean, he said that phrase, and it's just like, it like lodged itself in my mind, but this idea—some people call it profiling your data, or getting its kind of characteristic traits Just see what's there before you start asking real questions of yep. it. You know, just look around, see what's the highs and lows. Well,
1: and you provide some really yeah. practical tips for that, right? Of look at what the range has been historically. Are you still in that range? Are you not in that range? Here are questions to ask.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I've and I've done. I know that little list because I've messed up every one of those. But um, in my my uh, level two class, we walked through a ten point kind of contour checklist, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that needs to be something that takes f- four hours. It can just be a 15, 20 minute little...
1: It's like a gut check yeah. almost, right?
0: Right, are there nulls? Yes, no. Okay, where are they? Why are they there? Um, are there, you know, like you said, what's the min and max, is it? Is there a time field? Well, when does the data start and when does it end? And why does it start and end there? Um, like, those questions... Are
1: totals included? In yeah. Your writing, oh my and like, gosh. Yeah. That's
0: a, such an embarrassing one for me. Yeah. If there's totals in there, don't add everything up because then you get a double or maybe a <laughs> quadruple if you don't know what you're looking at there. Yeah. If we don't know if those things were there and then we start just dragging and dropping with today's amazingly powerful analytic software, we might get a very wrong answer. And feel we're very right.
1: And I wonder as well, because some of those things are so easy, right? The aggregation, mm-hmm. the dragging and dropping, as you talk about, we're more inclined maybe to want to jump there before doing the requisite things to get to know our data in ways that would help us from doing some of yeah. these things. Yeah,
0: I think the software gives you the, the place to start there. That's often step one. Um, you just, if you, in fact, it's the default. If you just drag something out there or double click, even sometimes, it'll sum things up or average things maybe without you even knowing that's what it's doing. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's, that's tricky, that's dangerous. And I think it's powerful because that is oftentimes the first thing you want to do, but only when maybe you have a good grasp of the data and what's there. Um, and that's actually one of the questions that came through with the community too, just this idea about what do I do if I have no idea about yes, the data and the, the, the variables. And yeah, what was the question that came through there?
1: Ah, I think it's this one. So this is from Cassandra Sherrill. As a journalist, I'm often presented with data whose specifics are unfamiliar to me, and yeah. there's often not a data dictionary to help clear things up, or somebody readily available to ask. Are there any tips for getting up to speed on data I don't know much about? Is there something beyond lots of reading up or things I should look to for help?
0: Yeah, I think there's no shortcut here, but I do think exploring the contours, like we were talking about, which is what made me think about that question, that is a good starting point. And then, Oftentimes the journalists I had a chance to get to know and work with while I was leading the Tableau public platform would always think of it like interviewing your data yeah. and ask, ask, asking a set of questions of that data. But then really, like you would, you know, kind of being skeptical of what you hear back, maybe even, you know, I hate to say interrogating, but that can be sort of the atmosphere of, I really want to scrutinize this resource that I have, like any resource, and really figure out what are its biases, what are its weak points. But then ultimately, I think it is good to reach out to the data owner and maybe, I, I appreciate, because the, the question by Cassandra, you know, she's a journalist. Sometimes they, I, I really feel for them. Sometimes they have maybe an hour or two and they've gotta get something out with the news cycle being so tight. Um,
1: well, and this, by the way, is not unlike the corporate world, right? Yeah. Where you're in a business True. and you've been told, you know, you, you need to by the next PM. meeting. Exactly. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so then we sometimes have to roll with what we've got. And then maybe I think talking about the caveats of the unknowns or the questions that are still unresolved, I think is important to put them out there so that we don't give people the false impression that there's certainty where there's not.
1: How do you do that though? Because this is a question that comes up for us a lot and that we spend a lot of time uh, discussing and talking through with groups, which is, how do you figure out how much
0: you should mm-hmm. caveat your data, right? Because if you over yeah.
1: caveat, then people- you, you, you just pull the
0: rug out from exactly. under your own feet and now but, they're just tuning you out. Yeah, but yeah. then there's
1: the alternate side of that where you don't share enough of some of the assumptions yeah. or the way things could be wrong or how things are estimated, where people might make a different decision as a result right. of
0: some of those things. Totally, and then send them down the wrong path there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a balance. I'd love to hear, it sounds like this is a, comes up in the workshops a lot. I'd love to hear what people say because I don't have a really great answer To that, other than
1: there's no great answer, yeah, I think
0: it's a balance. Yeah, you've got to really strike that balance of this is enough information where they know the source. Basically, they've got to know the source and they've got to know maybe some of the details around what that data set involves. Maybe there's a sample, they need to understand that. How is it chosen? without having four slides of you know thousands of words of describing all the nuances of the background. Yeah. Sometimes what I've seen journalists do well is there's a methods tab or an about tab or a section where anything you want to know about the data is there mm-hmm. and someone can replicate what you've done or at least understand all the steps of what you've done. Which, can which be is a nice
1: thing to think about as you're doing an analysis, right? To do that yeah. for yourself. Because I think doing something right. like that, one, it makes it more replicable, whether it's by us in the future or by someone else, but then it makes you think about those yeah. decisions. That
0: enforces a discipline, I think, is it slows you down, but it gives you a disciplined approach that helps you avoid some of the errors that I talk about in the book. But then also, you know, yeah, that's all over here. If you want to know anything, here you go. Uh, here's the list of all of our methods and techniques the sources, their limitations, it's all there. So no one's trying to sweep anything under the rug. Yeah. And then, okay, here are the two or three most important points for everyone to know out of that you know, about page. Yeah. Maybe it's like, yeah, we sampled and there were a thousand respondents, right? That was an email survey. Here's the people that were chosen. Um, so those, I think, kind of, what are the key talking points that comes out of those details?
1: When we'll often come back to, right, if we're a little bit wrong, is mm-hmm. that, does that change things fundamentally? Mm-hmm. Like, is mm-hmm. the outcome or the direction we're going to go fundamentally different? Or if we get things a little bit wrong, nah, directionally, we're still sort of going down the same path. Because those are yeah. two very different scenarios. I
0: think so, yeah. And I think that, is that someone mentioned in the questions, too, this idea of the, what's it called, the rats? The, 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 the ris- risky yeah,
1: assumptions to test. Yeah. yeah. so uh, assumptions to test. Graham Gourlay yeah. brought this up. And yeah. It, yeah. His question is about uh, storytelling with data, best practices on how to present. A precursor to this is having sufficiently high-grade data to use. What techniques do you recommend for quality checking data prior to using or publishing it?
0: Yeah, and that's that. So you're having assumptions about the data. What's the riskiest assumption you're making? Yeah. And then how do you test that? That's a genius approach. I never heard that acronym RATS before, but I like it. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Because there's lots of assumptions, some of them might be minor, like you're saying, and yeah. not really directionally important, or at least that's our assessment of what those are. There's others that are major, big, big like caveats that um, totally pivot where you go based on, on that assumption.
1: And how so, do we identify those, do you think? Because y- when we get so far into the data, so far into our own stuff, it becomes difficult sometimes to even be able to see that we're making an yeah. assumption that might be risky.
0: I think there's the role of the devil's advocate in a group, which can be helpful to say, you know, let's throw everything we got at this analysis and this data. Who would, Even maybe assign that role yep. um, to make sure we're avoiding groupthink, to make sure we're not just giving the loudest, most influential person in the room, what they think or what they want to hear. What is the role of the individual saying, like time out. um,
1: And when do you seek out that devil's advocate? What part of the process do you think?
0: I think it's gotta be, I'm a big believer in like starting, before we even analyze the data, I think that it's helpful to journal as a team. What do we think it's gonna tell us? And Mm -hmm. what are our biases about that? Let's try to identify that even before we start to crunch the numbers because you sort of kind of assess the collective intuition of the people in the room yeah. and everybody then has all the cards on the table here's what i think it's going to tell us here's what i want it to tell us i'll just be yeah. that i'll just be honest about that this is the answer that would be the most convenient for me yeah. right and then in that sense you kind of put yourself out there to say well you know now, if that's, the, if that's the conclusion I jump to, well, the people in the room are going to say, well, you already told us that's what you wanted to say, you know, and they said the same thing And we'll thing have too.
1: a healthy dose of skepticism that yep. is probably warranted. <laughs> I think
0: so. And you put yourself on the hook to being able to prove it now yeah. as opposed to just trying to shortcut to your answer, the one that your boss wants, the one that you want.
1: Well, and when, so, you, when you fast forward ahead to then, when you do that process, early on, mm-hmm. then when you get to the ending right, when you are at the point where you're communicating, now when those questions come up, you can address them yeah. in a totally different way.
0: Right, because you thought about it, as yeah. opposed to someone throwing that zinger uh, when you're presenting, isn't that convenient for you that that's your answer? Yeah. And you have, haven't and you even realized that that's a convenient answer. Maybe you weren't even that honest with yourself in the process to say, yeah, this is really helpful to me and my agenda and my, my role or whatever. So that's baked into everything we do and it's really hard to extract all of it. And so instead of trying to be some kind of robots that are fully objective, let's just talk about our biases and and our preconceived notions, put them out there on the table. That's a real, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever seen a group do that. That's a really vulnerable sort of approach. But I think that it probably feels like it's the right approach.
1: Absolutely. And it gets people talking about the right sort of things and aware of the assumptions they may be inadvertently making and yep. uh, making others aware in ways that just make everything more robust.
0: Yeah. And the other person across the table from you is going to notice something or think of something that it just wasn't even in your, your frame of reference. And, and maybe it has to do with, something that you're not that familiar with. Maybe it's a part of the business. Maybe it's a type of, of customer that you're not thinking about. It's outside of your, your mind, and so then that's where team-based analytics, I think, can really, if done right, can be something that helps us avoid some of the comments that are coming in the questions on the community, like about your riskiest assumptions, yeah. like about data you're not familiar with, you know, incorporating other people's perspectives. What about these
1: biases as yeah. well, right? right? Of being able to identify them. What about, so I have to think that's one of those things, you know, if you're getting people together, you're putting assumptions out there, you're playing devil's advocate, you're pressure testing stuff, mm-hmm. that the just doing that makes it part of the process over time. Yeah. But it takes time, right? It takes having yes. a culture that is conducive. Yeah. How do you, and this I feel like is a discussion we find ourselves getting more and more into over time as well, which is if you're somebody who's working with data, how do you influence the people around you, that all of this stuff takes time, Mm -hmm. uh, that it's an important part of the process, and sort of get the patience that you need on the part of your stakeholder or your audience member to be able to be robust in doing some of these things.
0: Yeah, I I don't think anybody can, like, themselves somehow magically create that environment. I think it takes people kind of... It takes very secure leaders that are okay with that kind of dialogue instead of just steering it the way they want it to go, you know. And sometimes, actually, it takes... it takes the awareness that maybe there are certain circumstances where that's not the best approach because there isn't time. Yeah. And so then you have to make a decision before you have the time to get all of that done. Um, So those are different, I would say like contexts within which we need to make decisions as teams. And so then an assessment of how much data do we have? How much time do we have? Do we have a scenario where we have lots of time and lots of data? Let's do the most rigorous Mm -hmm. approach here as opposed to sometimes we maybe have a lot of data, but we don't have time. You know, well, particularly
1: like, when the stakes are high, right? Because that's right. sort of a prioritization piece that can get put into play as well.
0: Yeah, right. So like what's, what's uh, riding on mm-hmm. this decision, if it's really a lot, like certainly like people's lives, w- which is the case many times uh, in the background I've had in medical devices, that is exactly what's yeah. on the line. And so then that's why a lot of the regulatory requirements are in place to force that level of rigor which even that can be gamed, you know. Unfortunately, but I think it takes it's it's a it's this is this is the question everybody's asking right now, which is how do we create? They call it a data-driven culture. I feel like it's more like a data-savvy culture mm-hmm. because I don't believe data should drive it. That's a topic for another discussion. But
1: sounds like a good discussion. Yeah, it's, a, it's
0: yeah, <laughs> it's it's what is what is the way we generate that kind of culture within our working environment? I think that there's a bunch of factors, and I'm trying to put together a little assessment right now uh, that helps chase that out. But, you know, it's like, well, what role does ethics play here? Uh, in and human
1: intuition, too, yeah. right? You talk about that in the book.
0: Right. Let's embrace that intuition is, is a part of the way we do this. The way we work with data actually has... Um, sort of so sort of these notions that bubble up that maybe we don't even know where they came from. And that isn't sort of some mystical thing to poo-poo and avoid. It's actually a beautiful part of the way the human brain works and something to just really harness, you know, uh, like only we can do. And so all of those things, I think, kind of play into creating this culture we're thinking about that is effectively using data, but not over-relying on it. Yep. You know, finding effective uses while also continuously improving it. So uh, there's a lot there, and I don't think it's something that you just make overnight with a program or a little community initiative here or there. Those are all helpful. Those not are the all community
1: initiatives are bad things. <laughs>
0: exactly. <yeah. laughs> I, I think it's, it's a necessary thing, but it isn't yeah. sufficient. Right. That that yes. in of itself is not going to get rid of uh, maybe process bottlenecks you have or insecure leaders that are preventing their talented people from making progress or tools that are tripping you up for one reason or another maybe because of lack of, of proficiency with them.
1: Well, and I think sometimes we think, right, we have all this data, so like, why aren't we better at this already? But one mm-hmm. of the things that you point out in the, the setup for your book is, we're actually in the infancy, right? When you consider the broad range yeah. of human history and the amount of time within that that we've been working with large amounts of data, it's actually a very tiny bit of that, Yeah, uh, which is one of the reasons that we make these errors and then we fall into these traps. And I yeah. think it, the book is, a great read for anybody who's working with data because it's this really like good assessment of, you know, here, here are the things that I've seen. Here are the things that I've done or here are the things I've seen other people do that are not working well. Mm-hmm. And here's how you can learn from that so that hopefully we can all help each other speed up this knowledge. Yeah,
0: gain. yeah it's about the learning curve there. You know, what if, we, what if we built a better immune system like a baby's body does um, for the next generations? What if we could do that? You know, what if we could figure out how to... Um, really create an awareness of biases in our algorithms and in our data uh, and propagate that forward to hopefully, you know, this is a generational thing. We don't have to solve this problem right now overnight, but we do have to put our finger on what's going wrong. We do have to put our finger on the kinds of things that are um, causing harm with data. That's important to identify early. And uh, yeah, I haven't talked to, and maybe because I'm, I'm, by default, I'm talking to companies that are asking for help, but every company I talk to no, and you would be really, you know, these are big companies, these are massive organizations. Some of the most, I would say like data, you would assume these people, if anybody thinks they're good with data, it's these people. And those are the people coming to me saying, we feel like we don't have a clue. Yeah. And that to me is where I started to say, oh wow. Does that
1: scare you or does that excite you?
0: You know, I think it's it's a little eye-opening. It's yeah. like, whoa, then nobody really feels like they're doing this well. Oh my God, okay, well. We are the baby here that is learning to crawl. And that's where um, that we got our work cut out for us. Sometimes it can feel overwhelming, like, but in, this, in a sense it has a good thing to it for me and my business because there's no need for competition because if you were to line up down the road, the people that I have time to help this year with my little business, the real issue is like thousands upon thousands time, lo- longer than that line that I can help. And so then in that sense, you know, my job is to also shine the spotlight on other people that are doing the same thing. Um, So that's nice. That's, you know, the the Canadian in me likes that. There's no competition here. We're not trying to uh, carve up a pie. It's, It's just like, wow, the gap is so big. That we so, all have to pitch in, you know?
1: And on that front, what would you say for folks listening who yeah. say, you know what, this makes sense to me. How do I how do I help push this yeah. along? What's your advice for people?
0: Yeah, I think so. You know, when you and this is one thing I love about the idea of the language. It's not a perfect analogy. We're talking about speaking the language of data. Um, well, if we've all learned a foreign language, maybe in school or what have you, and so you know, you learn a language when you listen to it, and when you put yourself in an, into an environment where you have to speak it, mm-hmm. and then also when you're around people that are fluent, and you learn from them, just listening to them, um, and so then you know we all play that role for each other by increasing our own level of fluency, right? Having that conversation, participating as a as a person who's more and more and more, more fluent, right? exactly, saying, "Oh, hey, the reason why I don't understand is because of this." Or maybe I'm in front of a group and instead of just showing them a scatter plot, like I build it. I take three or four steps and put the dots here and then move them and assemble this little chart for them in a way that helps them realize because you know, a lot of them don't know what a scatter plot is telling them at all. They're totally unaware of what that means at all. And so then, you know, kind of taking it upon myself to, in a non-a-condescending way, but in a hopefully quick and helpful way, in five to ten seconds, can I build a scatter plot for them? One, two, three steps, there and it is. Through and that this process, is why.
1: illustrate what they're looking Right,
0: at, and right? that's why this little outlier over here is so interesting because it's one that's here and there, right? And they say, oh, yeah, and now they understand where I'm taking them. So those little things I think we can do uh, because we're now uh, speaking the language more fluently, also putting ourselves around people. I think of all the people in my career that I've had the benefit of learning from They've taught me to teach, to speak this language better just by me being around them, you know. So I think that in that sense, it's a progression we're on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then those are things I think anybody can do. You don't have to have a business. You don't have to have a blog. You don't have to have a book. You can just do that just by being a person who is uh, trying harder to speak that language more and more fluently every year. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I love that. You talked about this a little bit earlier on, and I said we would come back to it, so I want to make sure that we do, but this idea of communities, right? Mm -hmm. And that there are some tool-based communities that exist, but this idea of bringing communities together, Mm -hmm. which I think helps or could help with some of the things that we've been talking about too, right? Bridging those gaps, but how do we do do that? Or Mm -hmm. what role do you want to play or should people be playing when it comes to bridging some of those gaps across communities?
0: Yeah. um that's a great question and something i'm thinking about a lot because there's so many strong think about the r stats community Mm -hmm. or i've started to kind of get connected with like the power bi community obviously the tableau community something everybody marvels about it and its strength and its connectedness and its positive energy and those are all really good things and then so like how do we then build bridges i think of it as like building bridges across maybe islands right now and it isn't like they're on an island because that's where they want to be and they don't want to talk to anybody else it's because well, that's the people they're interacting when with sometimes right they
1: walk across another bridge to another island, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, every now and then maybe the, some tweet shows up in their little feed or what have you. But I think the Data Visualization Society has been uh, an amazing um, kind of element that got put into play last year that helped in this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, I'm excited about where this can take your community, your, the community you just launched. Because um, it's so important, I think, for us to facilitate conversations that get people connecting across tool based uh, perhaps maybe what have turned out to be tool based silos. Yeah. I also know like Makeover Monday for example really started in the Tableau world and that's great and this is largely there's a lot of participation there which is awesome but I know the leaders of that group made a conscious effort a couple of years ago to try to connect and see uh, maybe there are people using other tools that could you know, do the same kinds of thing. And maybe that would be really useful and helpful for all of us to understand. How did someone approach this same question with that tool? Oh, interesting, now I can learn from that. Um, so those are some of the ways I think we can connect by kind of also having not just tool-focused sub-communities, which will never go away, never should go away, but also having topical-focused sub-communities or maybe just also because
1: I think that gets us asking different sorts of questions
0: yeah exactly exactly which which uh, are also really important even for us to make good use of tool x whatever yep. that might be and so I know like your workshops you do also tool agnostic approaches yeah right? we
1: don't use any tools so
0: then you get to see people and in the room that probably are proficient in different tools and so I'm curious to know how does that facilitate a rich dialogue for you and your, your participants.
1: I think for us, it's interesting because it takes the tool conversation out of it entirely. So mm-hmm. no longer is it, well, how would you achieve that in you know, whatever the tool is? It's, right. wait, what, what questions should we be asking mm-hmm. about this? What does it tell us? What does it mean for the business? So it shifts the conversation in really interesting ways when people are thinking more about the decisions they're making and why they're making them versus yep. how to accomplish it in a specific tool.
0: Yeah, like getting anything done, there's different kinds of knowledge. There's the knowledge about the steps required and the process and the techniques, super important, but also the knowledge that's required about do, how to do it well and the meaning of it and the application of it and the human component of it, it being the thing we're making, maybe it's a, a chart or a graph or a dashboard, maybe it's a presentation. And so then, you know, yeah, can we make sure we're also having those great conversations about different aspects instead of you know being limited in ways that, I don't think anybody actually, I've, I, to this day, I don't think anybody is suggesting. It should be limited in that way. I just think we kind of fall into that, maybe the gravity takes us to a place where we are having conversations about tools, which is is needed, but then also having energy put into having different kinds of conversations, like you're saying, online communities, like the Tapestry Conference really taught me that. Sometimes it's in-person events, you know, ways to get people kind of talking across those different tool groups.
1: And this seems to be a theme that we keep coming back to, right? Of This Mm -hmm. idea of people talking more because we end up, you know, whether it's you with your analytical team as you're exploring data and voicing assumptions and testing those or conversations happening across some of these, what have maybe historically become a little bit siloed communities that we all will do smarter things as a result of some of those conversations.
0: Yeah. I think it's, I've been thinking about like the political climate in the country to kind of take it a totally different direction, but you know, if people sat down and had dinner with each other and yep. their families, people that disagreed, people that are sitting there blasting each other online. You know, what if they? What would they do that if they just had dinner with them the day before and their and their their seven-year-old son that really likes Legos or you know whatever? I mean, maybe I think they would treat each other differently. And so then I don't see a lot of people mistreating each other in the data community, but I do think that same function of bringing people together and helping them get to know each other uh, across tool silos can can help maybe. Uh, generate even a richer dialogue there than what we've seen yeah this
1: well because this humanization piece of it helps us be more open to other viewpoints right right so In yeah ask questions openly in ways that again enable us to have smarter and conversations. you just
0: value the other people yeah. and what they're saying differently when you know them and it's hard to know it's that's the problem is with scale you know and the yeah. problem is everything's scaled at this crazy level with social media that, that doesn't really that, that allows for this super shallow Um, maybe almost very superficial connectedness. But I think then we still need to have kind of deep connections that are happening and that we're fostering. And then just being deliberate about that is important.
1: What's next for you, Ben?
0: Um, So 2020, I'm excited about this year. I've got some experiments I'm doing right now with on-demand training. I really want to reach more people that way. But I don't know how to do that well yet, so I'm going to have to learn that. Um, That's what's next for me pretty much right now. Uh, Also kind of thinking about Maybe self-publishing a book, just trying that. Mm. I did a couple, I did a book with O'Reilly, love them. Did a book with Wiley, love them too. I think I might want to try the self-publishing route, just to learn. Do you what's know what you're going in. to write about next? I have a couple ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think this data literacy piece that that could also have books that go along with some of my programs or courses. I have a totally different idea out there about this combination of intuition and analysis um, that picks up on some a little research I did in my MBA program. Going back a ways now that I've always had in the back of my mind, um, so that's maybe something for down the road. But, um, but yeah, I want to I make sure I have more time to s- spend on that one. Um, it's going to be probably called the Phaedrus effect, which is mm-hmm. uh, Phaedrus is the name of uh, one of Plato's discourses where he talks about the human uh, sort of soul being a charioteer, okay. you know. And so Phaedrus is the, the the learner who's kind of listening to this. Speech that's being given, but um, the idea there being there's different aspects of our mind and the way we think and make decisions. Some of it's analytical, some of it's emotional. Yeah. And how do you harness those? How do you bring them together? And uh, that's I think something that that's um, the time is right for a for a good book like that. Yeah. So, but yeah, those, I I think that one probably, I don't, I don't have, I I need a lot of time for that one. So that might be down the road, but yeah. But anyway, that's what's Ideas percolating. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Always, always. Where can people stay up with the latest? Yeah. So dataliteracy.com is my site and they can get in touch with me there. I think probably I've started to spend a lot more time on LinkedIn. So Mm -hmm. you can find me on there, the LinkedIn profile there, just Ben R. Jones, R for Richard. And then, uh. I'm on Twitter still way the heck too much, so I'm on there at Data Remixed, uh, but I try to have conversations there on at least a daily basis probably. Yeah, and then I'm I'm trying to put all the announcements and some thoughts out there on my Data literacy blog which you can find from the homepage.
1: great and yeah. we'll be sure to link to all of that stuff in the show notes cool any final thoughts for folks listening today
0: I, yeah i do have one final thought which is i want to say congratulations to you uh, because you won the number one oh. gold award <laughs> for the data literacy awards right. for 2019 being the top data podcast in the data world so congrats to that and so i guess your listeners are, are what got you there yeah congrats to you and, and i know that this is a lot of effort and i know I've heard from so many people, I've never done it, but I I want to do it eventually, but I know that doing a podcast is so much work getting it right. And so my last message, I guess, would be to you know, thank you for what you're doing and also Randy and the rest of the team to put these really helpful thoughts out there for everyone, whether they're listening, whether they're following along online or, or going to one of your workshops. I think those are all ways people are getting better and we're moving the species forward. Yeah, so, yeah. awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate yeah.
1: that. And yeah, I, I love it because it gives me the opportunity to be able to sit down mm-hmm. with folks like yourself and be able to share that conversation because you've been talking about talking right. uh, a lot today and we, we all, we can learn and do smarter things ask smarter questions as a result of that so thank you very much for sitting down with me today for everybody listening (laughs) the next thing you should do is go out to your favorite local bookseller or online place pick up a copy of avoiding data pitfalls and as i mentioned we'll link to all of ben's site and information in the show notes ben it has been a pleasure likewise thanks thanks for having me yeah absolutely thanks everybody for listening